Kids are dismissed to Children's Church in the library. Invited. That's a dollar in the first jar for the church. So thank you for that reading, Chris. There's this um, a lot of what we're we're gonna talk about today sort of evolving. You know there's no batteries in my mind. <laughs> You can keep batteries back there. They're on the floor. They're on the floor? Yeah. Right? Come on, I took them out because I'd be like, oh, then I'll remember to turn on my mic, put them in, because there won't be batteries in there. I don't know why that made sense to me at the time. <laughs> but, but what happened is, I, in fact, I just didn't turn it on. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. See, now the mic up there probably isn't turned off. Oh well. Um, that's Jonathan. I never use my voice on that. Um, off to a fast start. But what Chris read for us is this amazing poem that sort of begins our Bibles. Many of us are familiar with Genesis. And one of the things that I think about it is this: we talk about I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. This is is this beautiful poem always comes to mind for me when we say that line and it's it's got this structure and if you were paying attention this morning you could hear day one and day four mirrors each other god makes this thing and then he fills it and day two and day five they mirror each other god makes this thing and then he fills it and day three and day six they mirror each other god makes this thing and then fills it and this is sort of the way in which this poem is structured and it can't but help to bring us to praise or to move us or to or to hear that God called this very good. What we're going to find is that, that as we go through today's sermon, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, is that we'll find that this is, is not the easiest thing to come to. The early church struggled with this sort of, is creation good or bad? Is the earth worth saving? Is humanity in its bodily form worth saving in the world? What does it mean to sort of to, to say that this is good? This, this creation that's prone to decay, this creation that's prone to violence and disruption, this creation that, that is always sort of reflecting its brokenness back to us. What does it mean to say that this is good? Not only that, what did it say in the message, Chris? It was very good. God is pleased in this. One of the things that was hard for me as we approached this line of the creed and the focus for today being Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, one of the things that it was hard for me was picking scripture passages because there are so many good ones that, that radiate with this theme. We have, we have Psalm 8 that Katrina read for us at the start of the service about God setting the heavens, and, and it says something about God's power. God is almighty. And what is his defense in the world in Psalm 8? The praise of infants. And, and what um, Kara read for us during, during the worship part about the power and weakness, that, that Paul's talking about himself there, but he's also talking about what's been revealed in Christ, that this is a God whose power, his almightiness, God's powerful nature, and it's, uh, if God were just mighty, that'd be one thing, but his almightiness is portrayed in some sense in the weakness of the cross, as Paul is talking in Corinthians. And then Chris's passage, 
that reminded us of the goodness of creation. There's so much that we could go to. There's a, one of my favorites that I cut was uh, Jonah. Um, Jonah is trying to flee from the place that God wants him to go. He ends up on the ship, and the, a big storm comes. And they ask him, they say, right, get up from your sleep, Jonah, and call on your God. And he says, my God is the one who made heaven and earth. And the best part is these pagan sailors go, what did you do? <laughs> As if that was enough to say, uh, we know something of this God, and there's something serious there. And then there's Acts 17, that this is where Paul quotes the, the, the sort of poets of the Roman time. He says, this is the God whom we live and move and have our being. A lot of scripture to pull from for today. It was, it was tough to choose, but I think if we work with these themes that arose for us today, we could talk about this in, in several different ways. Now, now this um, is an Eastern Orthodox icon. Does anybody know the name of this icon? It's a famous icon. It's, you see it a lot. It's called the Panacrator. Uh, now, I may not be saying that correctly, but that's that's the name. It's the Panacrator. And it's a picture of Jesus. And what I found this week, because I was familiar with this from, from working in a bookstore where we sold a lot of Panacrator, which is weird to selling icons. This is weird. <laughs> we sold a lot of the icon, the Panacrator. Um, and so I was familiar with the term, but it turns out this, this term for Almighty in the Creed comes from this phrase, Panacrator. And so as I was writing the sermon this week, as I was, I was sitting with that phrase, what does it mean that God is Almighty? I kept coming back to this image, because what we do in the Creed is we call the Father Almighty. We believe in God, the Father Almighty. But there's also the sense in which through their relationship to each other, this Trinitarian relationship, you say it of all those who are in the Godhead. And so this, this icon, and I don't know, I tried to find out why they actually chose the name uh, Panacrator. But, but as you look at, at this, is our Almighty in some ways, right? He doesn't carry a sword, uh, but unless you're, you grew up with sword drills with the Bible, then he does carry a sword. Um, uh, he comes uh, making, making signs. He comes sort of in peace. He comes sort of in a different way. He doesn't come bearing violence. And so the first line we have to consider today, and the one we'll, we'll probably consider the shortest, is this calling God Almighty. What does it mean to God, call God Almighty? One of the things we talked about last week is that one of the things that the, the early Christians who sort of developed the creed were trying to defend against is this notion of pagan gods. Now, pagan gods in, in the first century world were mighty, and some were even probably called almighty. But their way of relating to humanity was sort of in disruptions. I will take the time to leave my royal throne, my place on high, and go and deal with humanity in a disruptive which is which is mighty <clears throat> but they come as sort of interrupters of the human world they come to sort of distract and to stir up problems if you're familiar with any of these stories there they also can die which is interesting that's that's not something uh that we think of with gods traditionally in the west is that they can be murdered by humans but that that seems to be something that happens for the gods of the ancient world one of the things that the, the early Christians were set to sort of establish is, how is this God, the God we worship, and they get this from Judaism, just not another thing in the universe? It's just not a human multiplied, as we said, up a hundred times or a thousand times. It's not the best human plus some. Um, it's not just bringing out the best in everything. And, and so that you have this notion in which they're trying to say that God is beyond that understanding in some ways. 
We struggle with this today. So if you've read Richard Dawkins or some of the, the new atheists, their, their understanding of God, which I think um, there's, a, there's a line that I like about Christians and atheists is that it's, it might be our fault that we're not able to produce interesting atheists anymore. Um, it might be our fault for this. But the God they sort of denounce is like, if this were the, we're denouncing the biggest person in the room is the way it works. That their atheism is sort of bent on like, as far as we think and know of this God, and, they, and Dawkins himself sort of says, I refuse to know that much about theology because why would I study something I don't believe? Um, which maybe leads to some of these faults, is that he's just denouncing sort of like God as this big man who controls it may be helpful for us to hear that as Christians we can say we don't believe in that God as well. The New Testament theologian N.T. Wright would meet with first year students at college and they would come to him and they said, well, I don't believe in God so I don't know why I have to meet with you. And he would say, well, what, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they would describe, you know, angry this old man in the sky, vindictive things. And he'd be like, well, at least we know that together we don't believe in the same God together. <laughs> that we're not, we're both actively not believing in that God. And they're capturing something of a God that's bigger and beyond. A God who can be perfect in weakness. One of the early church images for this is often the picture of a mother nursing, is the way that this God's strength is shown. Another person mentioned the idea of, of, of sort of like, um, have you ever seen, this is the downside of the internet, the cute picture of the German shepherd with the cat on his head? And the kitten's like pulling at his face. Um, both of these images capture something of that. Um, sorry, I compared a nursing mother to a German shepherd. <laughs> I realize I've gone astray. Um, point being is, both two things with power, and both sort of one in the one realm, the, the German shepherd is sort of restricting power, is that he's not destroying it. In the other realm, the nursing mother is sort of giving life out of it. When we think of God's power, we could. Perhaps think about the electrical grid, is that when you turn on a light, it's not that electricity just showed up, but that it's been running through everything all the time. That you have sort of this power that's sort of always present. This, this gets even further sort of in the, in the New Testament or the early church, is they get closer to that if God stopped thinking about preserving the universe, the universe would just disintegrate. The God's involved in its continual care and its continual sort of electric current, keeping it going. That if God practiced forgetfulness, which God doesn't, but if he did, God forgot about the universe, it would just end at that moment. That there would be nothing left. What this says about this God who can be powerful in weakness is that he creates, that God creates freedom. That God creates places for things to reside. His power isn't like the pagan gods, which is just stronger and stronger, but that is one that can use the praise of infants to guard him, as it said in Psalm 8. It's, it's a God that is not um, threatened by other things, but is one that is the undercurrent through it all. See, most of the things we think about with, with gods and such is that they get threatened by these things, but in fact, God is one who can share that space. And not only that, creates and sustains a space in which we live and breathe and move and have our being, as Paul says in Acts 17. And so that's what it means to call God Almighty in Greek, is that, is that he exists beyond the outside the power of manipulation and control, which is part of the way we think of power today. But, but what happens is when you think about powerful people, 
Um, I'll try not to name any, but, but they exist in sort of um, claustrophobic spheres that they're always worried about losing it. And yet somehow, our God is not concerned with that, with proclaiming him as almighty. And so that's, that's almighty, for his power is made perfect in weakness. The second line, which we kind of will break up into two, is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, I wanted to take a moment to talk about Marcion. And uh, let's just do Marcion and Gnosticism at the same time. Uh, Marcion, as we talked about, sort of, and have alluded to, he's this thinker that emerges right after Christianity. Marcion is, is interesting in that most people credit him with having the first selection of books that they make up a Bible. Marcion is the first one to gather sort of writings and say, this, let's print this um, as a Bible and make 10,000 different versions and translations and make it available to everyone. That was not happening in the ancient world. But he's the first one to say that this is, this is going to be our guidebook. This is going to be the first one to sort of have a canon. And so almost heretics, and this is what Marcion is called, um, have this way of sort of clarifying orthodoxy. It helps bring the church to say, okay, but we don't want those books. We want these books. And part of what Marcion does is, here's his description of humanity. Flesh stuffed with dung. <laughs> An elegant phrase. Um, I wonder if our, our, our full of dung comment is originated with Marcion. That person is full of dung. If he was the one to sort of start that, that colloquial saying that we have today. Um, but... Needless to say, that's how he described humanity. And he saw creation, all of creation, as sort of this thing in which was gross. His followers sort of renounced sexuality. They renounced sort of their bodies. They renounced everything. And his Bible, noticeably, would have this notion of, of that the Old Testament God is the one who created the earth, was sort of his belief structure. That God created everything. And the new God that we get in Jesus Christ is so much better than that. Because he frees us from these bodily prisons, these things that are disgusting, and raises us up to newer and higher possibilities. It's funny because we struggle with this in the church today, too. Marcionism is sort of a heresy. It's a, you know, this is just a shell, and I can't wait to get to someplace else. The New Testament language is seed, not shell, and it's so perishable, raised imperishable, but that implies some sort of continuation. It's not just a shell. It's not just something we disregard. But he saw reality as sort of this problem. The Gnostics share this in common too, and they sort of have this idea of secret knowledge. They actually think a lesser deity is what created all of the world. Somebody who's not quite as good as the God we meet in Jesus. And so they're both sort of governed by first this dualism. This material world, this that we exist in is bad. Our souls and the spirits that can be freed from them, that is good. That is what is good for us. Now, Gnosticism is a, is a term of a collection of all these things, but what they have in common is they sort of deny the body, that the material world is bad. And they provide a salvation through escape. They're going to escape from this world and this body and this thing. This is the way that they sort of look at reality. And so to be a Christian and proclaim that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and underneath I didn't say this, is the line from Nicaea, the maker of all that is seen and unseen is from the Nicaean Creed, uh, which will flesh this out a little bit more. But God is the creator of heaven and earth. To say that 
is to say something countercultural at this moment. To say that creation and the bodily life is good. And we see this. We just finished going through John. John begins with those famous lines that Chris read for us as well in the beginning. They tie Jesus to the act of creation himself. See, the Gnostics and Marcion were trying to protect Jesus from this bodily experience. There's, there's one of the Gnostic sects that sort of talk about that when he says it is finished on the cross, that his, he dies, his spirit just leaves, and the shell of the body dies. So Christ doesn't actually even experience death. He just sort of uh, pieces out of the world at that moment and, and goes up to be with the Father, sort of the way in which that happens. And so these two things are what the early Christians are sort of pushing back against that our bodies are gross and that this material world is worth sort of not having and destroying. But Christians proclaim goodness in the midst of this. Now one of the questions that sort of overlays both Almighty and Creator is this problem of evil, right? Is that if you're a believer in, in Marcionism or Gnosticism, it's easy to answer why evil things happen in the world, right? Because the world is evil. <laughs> The material world is bad. Everything here is bad. And so if you think, why are things bad? Gnosticism and Marcionism offer easy outs to that question. Everything around you is bad. Why should it surprise you? Now there's this story that T.S. Eliot tells called The Cocktail Party. But in it, a woman who's dealing with some psychological issues meets a psychologist. And she says to the psychologist, I'd really like to meet with you to find out what's wrong with me. And he's like, I'll meet with you, but why, um, why do you assume there's something wrong with you? And she said, well, I'm losing sleep, this, that, and the other. And if there's something wrong with the world, then that would be miserable. But if there's something wrong with me, then maybe we could make it better. That we could do something about it. But if what I'm feeling about the world is right, then there is no hope. Now, Gnosticism had a hope, but that's sort of their solution, is it? To the, the, the problem is the world, right? And what Christianity and its wisdom says is, is, is sort of that the problem is you. The problem is us. The problem resides near to us. Our own disruptions, our own violence, our own necessity to do these things is where the problem resides. If you look at the problems out in the world and wonder how could it be, Christianity says, do you not know yourself? Do you not know your own corruption to some degree? This doesn't answer the problem of evil effectively, as we know. They have, they have ways of answering this that we won't get into today through, through sort of denying the reality of evil. But they, they sort of say that this is not a world that was meant to be destroying to us. We believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, and that is a good thing. And last week we talked about how this language of father instantly indicates son. If you met somebody who just walked around and said, and they're not a Catholic priest, but that just came to me, um, and, and you walked around and said, call me father, um, you would assume, then where are your children, right? Do you have kids? Because it's a, it's a language that has a relational term to it. Same, too, with creator or maker. What did you make? I'm a creator, which is now an adjective. I'm a creator. I'm a creative person. Oh, what do you do? Nothing. No, assume something you do. And so by virtue of calling God creator, we assume that there is creation. 
or creatures. Now this is um, uh, my attempt to draw the earth. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you believe, or not if you believe, uh, uh, plate tectonics, this was some form of plate tectonics, let's say. Um, well, the, it's still moving, it's not quite there yet. But, but as you can see, I, I, I perfected. Um, this, is, this is the earth, and, and what Christians say is that we believe in this good earth, this creator from God, and that we know that it exists in dysfunction and war. And the scene that after Chris read for us, as we talk about the fall, and the ways in which humanity disforms its creation. There's a line that Kelly likes that we picked up from a thinker, is that, is that um, even the ground is cursed. When Kelly thinks about cancer, she often says to me that even the ground is cursed, that there's something that happened in the fall that, that, that made things, cells, and stuff go awry. And yet somehow Christianity wants to keep what God said about this place, that this creation is, still has this goodness in it. The second circle is my artistic rendition of heaven. Much better, right? It's cool. Um, and what Christianity says is heaven is this realm in which God's sort of goodness resides, that, that sin and distortion don't exist there. And what we see sort of in the Bible, and we can take this, is that they're sort of pushed apart. They're separate circles I could draw, is that earth is on one side, and heaven is on the other side, and the goal for us is to get from heaven to earth, and the only way we do that is by dying, right? But in fact, the Bible isn't about that story. The Bible is about this story of sort of the merging together of heaven and earth. And so if you think about um, uh, the places, the temple, the temple is decorated like a heavenly place. The temple is supposed to be this place in which the animal absorbs the sin of the world and is created clean again. This is sort of the way in which heaven and earth are sort of connected there. When Jesus comes on the scene in John's Gospel, we talked about this one with John, is the phrase that used that he dwelt among us is that he tabernacled amongst us. That Jesus becomes this living tabernacle of God's holiness that moves and sort of can act in the world in a purifying way. Is, that, is what we're talking about is sort of this movement of reparations in the world, of repairing, of bringing it back together and of mending. We don't just leave to go to heaven, but there's something good about our existence now that God still cherishes, that God made this place. It's this phrase from the thinker of Barbara Brown Taylor that matter matters to God. And I think she says, after all, he created it. Um, that matter is this thing that matters to who God is. And so we have in this realm Jesus and in, in, in this is the, I think what happens in, or what I would, the word I would use for this overlap is that both heaven and earth are attracting and rebelling against each other. There's judgment in that space. The things which are imperfect. That they just can't loop into overlapping territory because there's a pushback because of what happens in earth. Right? And so with the church and the, in the, uh, well, let's just say the church, and by virtue of being connected to the cross in Jesus Christ, is called to be in the world is a witness to that realm, a sign pointing to the place of reparation. It's almost supposed to be that better place on earth in which the repairing is beginning to happen. But that's supposed to be what's going on in the church. 
because it's supposed to be this overlap, and it spills out into the world. And so there's this um, there's this idea, and I'll skip to here, is that this is why we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Revelation 21 ends with that. Um, there is a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed heavens and a new earth. That God isn't content to just abandon this project. So as you can see, that was two circles are overlapping there as best as I could do it. If they were exactly overlapping, it wouldn't be one circle. Um, so I tried to make it clear that this is this new creation of heaven and earth bound together. This is what happens. And the thought I wanted to end with today is this thought from Wendell Berry, which I've said a couple times, but I wanted to put it up for us to consider. Is it's easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between to those who live, between people who live, wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. It's easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between those who choose to live, or between who wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. Rowan Williams said that in this day and age, the art of being a creature is being lost. We don't use the phrase that often, that we're creatures of a generous God. Cre creation is what's out there, but creation is also us. We are these creatures of God. And what does it mean for us to reclaim some of that in the world? I think it partially means recovering the limits of what it means to be a creature. To accept as much as we should try to conform the natural world to our desires and wishes, it's not that way. We have limits. It might mean the acceptance of aging, as we live in a world that pushes that back further and further. And to say not only that, that we don't push aging off to the periphery to the extent to which we don't see it anymore. It might be, and this is a challenge in sort of big science thing, is that what will it happen if humanity is able to upload its consciousness to some the cloud and not have to deal with reality anymore? Instead of dying, you can just download your brain and live forever in some matrix-like thing, I guess. As far as I understand, we're far away from that, and it may not even be possible. But what would it mean for Christians to say, you know, as creatures, we have limits? We still practice that this thing is meant to end someday. We're not content just to upload our brains to someplace else. And the last thing I think we'll be called into sort of reclaiming is this things invisible, the line from the creed, the maker of things visible and invisible, seen and unseen. That we'll be reclaiming prayer in our lives. That we'll be believing that when we say yes, when we pray that God would make earth as it is in, is in heaven, that we're actually participating in an unseen reality of which God is Lord, in which we witness and point to in our lives. Prayer is this sort of thing that breaks that machine mentality. You accept that there's something outside of yourself, that you need help beyond what's available in your sphere, and you ask God to intercede into that place. Recovering these habits might be the places where we discover what, it likes, what it's like to live as creatures again, and push back in a world that tells us we should be content to live as machines, merely getting what we want, responding to what we have, and uploading our consciousness into whatever they want to call it. Let us pray.
that we come together today as your creatures, as that which you have created. We accept that this comes with limits, that we are not God, that we are not almighty, that we are not without limit. Yet we proclaim that that is who you are for us, our generous creator, one who shares power and sustains this heaven and this earth that you created, which is good. We await as a church, as a body, as those called by your name, the emerging of heaven and earth again, the renewed heavens and earth which every tear shall be wiped, every disease abolished, every dysfunction released, so that we may exist with you and receive that rest in which you promised to us. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.